All right, good morning. Happy Father's Day to the men, fathers today, praise the Lord. I always get to celebrate twice. Father's Day in Australia is in September, so we get double dose. But uh, praise the Lord, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Thank you for praying for the trip. I was in Australia for three days. I landed at 7 o'clock on Monday morning, and I left at 7 o'clock on Thursday morning. Uh, but we had a great funeral, a couple of people saved, and the Lord just blessed the, the whole time there, so thank you very much for that. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter number 4, Hebrews chapter number 4, and thank you for the opportunity to teach again. Um, we had some friends visit us a little while back, if you remember the Highlands, and they sat in on the, the class when Brother Lewis was teaching, and he said to me, he said, I don't think I've ever heard such a great Sunday school teacher like Brother Lewis, honestly. And so it's, he's got some shoes, there's shoes to fill when you stand here, and same in the pulpit. We have, um, in the last couple of times that uh, I've been teaching... We were looking at the subject of discernment. I'm going to give it one more whack, and then I'm going to let it go. But I wanted to, I wanted to go back to some things that I had said before and elaborate further, and then we're going to talk about the use of discernment. How do we use it? And some biblical examples of using discernment. So we're in Hebrews chapter number 4, and what I would like to do is I want to read from verse 1, set the context for verse 12. And we'll talk about what I mentioned last time was discerning ourselves. Now remember that the definition of discernment is to make a distinguishment between two things or two people or otherwise. It's to discriminate. It's to separate things, to understand the difference between things. That's what discernment means. And so we look here at Hebrews chapter number 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering in, into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, obviously, uh, following after chapter 3, he has talked about there the children of Israel and the, the follies of the children of Israel. They're not trusting God in certain circumstances, and they're not mingling with what, what they hear with faith. And that's what he's coming to here in verse number 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So he's talking about let us fear. It's about fearing the Lord. And, uh, and, and this, well, let's just go verse number two. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now, that's a very important verse because it says essentially that you can hear the truth and have your head filled with the truth. But when you're not mixing that with faith, there's no value to it. Now that right there is in a reference to salvation, but he expands that now. And he's going to go beyond salvation because the principle is true, whether we're talking about the lost not, mix, not mixing what they hear with faith, or whether we as saved people don't mix what we hear with faith, the principle remains the same. There's no profit when we don't mix faith with what we hear. Okay, so again, verse number two, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, 
not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today... After so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That was a lot going on there, and sometimes when you're just reading through it, it's kind of difficult to, to discern everything that's being said. But he's talking about the same subject here, the same idea of not discerning or not mixing with faith what you hear. And so he, he's talking this right up to the time of David. David was looking back at this and saying, well, they just wouldn't mix faith with what they, what they were hearing. And so he's warning them and says, don't harden your heart. And that's really where, that's where this whole thing boils down to is what's going on in our hearts. And he says in verse number eight, for if Jesus had given them rest, this is an interesting verse. Uh, I I believed for a long time, and I was taught for a long time, that Jesus there is a reference to Joshua of the Old Testament. I no longer believe that. Now, I'm not dogmatic on this, and, and I certainly don't want to establish doctrine. It's not my church to do that. But I think the Holy Spirit chose that word carefully, that name carefully. And I don't believe it was talking about Joshua bringing them into the promised land, because the passage has already moved beyond that up to David. And he's talking here about Jesus. If Jesus had given you rest, and he's not talking about rest and salvation, but rest in your labors. So, so let, me, let me explain something for a minute. In order for us to be saved, we have to have Jesus Christ. And once we have Jesus Christ, we enter into the rest that Christ provides. My soul is no longer responsible for a labor. I can't do works of the law to please God. It's all been taken care of in Christ. And so my soul rests in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not finished. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 talk to us about that. Verse number 10 tells us, that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so there is, after salvation, God didn't say, sit down, you're at rest, and everything's finished. He said, you're saved, your soul is at rest, but your labors have just begun. Jesus didn't save us so that we wouldn't do anything. He saved us so we would do something. And if we understand that, then this doesn't become sort of a heretical look at that verse when you say, you know, Jesus didn't give him rest. Because if you say, well, he didn't give him rest and it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, it sounds heretical. But when we understand the whole teaching of the passage, 
It's about the fact that there's something for us to do after we're saved. All right, let's come back to then verse number eight. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Another day of rest. Well, we already know when that is. That day of rest is when we enter into heaven. When all labor is finished. Right? Okay, verse number 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And we look forward to that time of rest. Right now it's time to labor, but we look forward to rest. Verse 10. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore. You notice that? And notice, by the way, how labor and rest coexist together. There is no such thing as rest without labor. And so there's a rest from the labor of trying to gain salvation, which we've rested from because we just put our faith in Christ. And there's coming a day where there's rest from the labor of our works as believers. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, what happened? He's talking back and saying, look, those people are an example to you that when you don't mix what you hear with faith, you fall. And it's a matter of unbelief. And he's already told us that unbelief takes place in the heart. So he tells you to guard your heart. We have unbelief in our heart, which causes us to not believe what God says, which then produces a non-laboring individual, someone who's not obeying God. He said you need to work at not being that type of person. Uh, the Christian life was never meant for us to just sit down and coast through. It's, it's work. There are some things when you get saved that God just takes away from you or He puts into you, but there are some things that are our responsibility to cultivate or to get rid of in our life. And God's not going to do that for us. He tells us to do it. All right? Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Then verse number 12, 4. In the sense of because. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, the rest of the passage is a great blessing, but that's where I'm going to stop. So I want to talk then for a moment on this idea of us discerning ourselves. We already learned in verse number 2 that hearing the gospel but not mixing it with faith was of no profit to those who heard it. And likewise, there is a rest in our salvation, according to verse 3, that remains, and that is a further rest for the people of God, verse number 9. So we labor after our salvation to enter into a secondary rest so that we'll not fall after the same fashion as those who by example were not saved because they didn't mix what they heard with faith. Now, I read that because I wanted to get it right, okay? I, didn't, I knew I wouldn't be able to just say it. Can I read it again? 
We labor after our salvation to enter into a secondary rest so that we'll not fall in the same fashion as those who by example were not saved because they didn't mix what they heard with faith. We're coming to a time when we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And we're going to be judged according to our works. And we're going to be rewarded according to those works. And he's saying what God has said to you, you need to mix with faith, that is believe what he said, and do it so when you come to this time of judgment, you don't fall short. That you fulfill what God has for you. Now what does this have to do with discernment? It means that I have to look at myself and I have to judge myself. Discern myself. Because the Word of God is one day also going to discern me. And it does even today, I understand. But there's coming a time in judgment that the Word of God is going to discern me and you. As we stand before God. And when we give answer for ourselves to say, uh, this is why I did what I did. Why I spoke what I spoke. Why I didn't do what I didn't do. And all of my thoughts and my intents are laid bare before God through the Word of God. And He says, I want you to discern that. I want you and I to think about why are my thought processes the way they are? What causes me to do what I do? What's my intents, my purpose? When I think about how I respond to the Word of God, I need to look at that and say, what does God's Word say about what I think? Am I making sense this morning? I hope I am. What does the Word of God say about my purpose, my intent, or my intentions here? What's the end result? And as I begin to discern myself, then I start, of course, this explodes into every area of my life. How do I respond to other believers in my life, for example? And when something takes place between them, sometimes it's uh, between us, there's some friction. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's friction. Hopefully more blessings than friction. And how do I respond to those things? What is my thought processes? Do I have a critical attitude and a critical spirit toward that individual? i got to discern it and judge it. Because we're very good, and this is going to spill over into the next thing I want to talk about, but we're very good about justifying our own thoughts and justifying our own intents. But God's Word discerns it, and He says, I want you to discern it using the Word of God. All right, are we good? Okay. Brother Tucker's good. (laughs) All right. I'm glad I got you, Brother Tucker. You can help me get out of here this morning if I have to. What's my reasoning for doing or not doing? What's my purpose? It's all going to be laid bare before Him. And it it is already laid bare before God. But one day it's going to be laid bare for everybody at the judgment. He said, so discern it. 
Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of leave that because that's a foundation then for the rest of what I want to talk about. We can discern ourselves then in, in areas such as our spirit. And I know Brother Hoots mentioned this, I think, the first time that I introduced the subject in Luke 9.55. Do you remember James and John, the sons of thunder? And Jesus was, gonna go through, was going through Samaria and His face was as though He'd go to Jerusalem. And so they didn't want to receive Him in, in Samaria. And they just wanted Him to keep moving along. James and John got angry about it. And remember what they said to the Lord? Would you that we would call down fire and destroy them the way Elijah called down fire? And he quickly turns to them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. Because the Son of Man didn't come to destroy lives, He came to save them. And so in the same fashion, I have to discern what's my spirit. And again, I, some, a lot of preaching, I guess, uh, centers around the, the problems that we face because that's where we end up stumbling and sinning and committing offense. If somebody does something wrong against you or I, what's the spirit that I have about it? Is my spirit that I want God to destroy them? I want God to bring swift judgment on them? I want God to harm and hurt them in some way because of what they did to me or the way they responded to me or what they think of me. And when we put it in that terms, anybody here can discern that that's just not right. But that's not the way this works when we're in the middle of a problem. In the middle of the problem, we're justifying ourselves and we're thinking it through and we think, God, you ought to get them. You ought to do something. You ought to bring judgment on them and their home. And, and then when something bad does happen, we think, yeah, they earned that. But the Lord's looking at that saying, you don't even know what, what spirit you're of. Because that is not the spirit of Christ. This is where charity comes in. Because charity is what governs how we respond to other people, how we interact with other people. Charity is that bond of perfectness. It's the one that tempers our response to wrongdoing, to things that don't line up with what we think. It's kind. It's gentle. It suffers long. Paul told us, the Holy Spirit told us, that faith, hope, and charity abide right now, but the greatest of these is charity. It's better than hope. It's better than faith. So charity becomes then, you know, the thing that binds all of this thing together. But what is our spirit as we think about other people? Because the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I know that's hard. And, and of course, I give personal illustration, and I'm sure any of you could give personal illustration to things that have happened in your life where somebody wronged you, legitimately wronged you, and you had to go through a process in your mind of getting past wanting harm to come to them as God dealt with you and with me about the thoughts of our heart and the spirit that we have. We've got to be very careful about our spirit. So we discern ourselves in our spirit. 
and the discerning of ourselves in judgment. These are all linked together. I want you to look at, uh, at Genesis 38. I want to draw a principle here out of Genesis 38. Are we doing okay? All right. Genesis chapter number 38, and in this chapter, Judah has two sons. Those sons are wicked. The first son married a wife, and God killed him, but he didn't have a son, so Judah told the second son to go in, as was the tradition, to go in and raise up a seed for his brother. And that son went in and behaved himself wickedly and disobeyed what God had told him to do. So God killed him. And Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he says, wait until my next son is grown and I'll give you to him and he'll raise up seed for you. Well, the time came that she should have been given as a wife to the next son, Shua, and She wasn't. Now what she's about to do is wrong. And she dresses herself up in a way that provoked him in his heart to lust and and she looked like a harlot. And so Judah went in to her not knowing who she was and she conceived a child. She conceived, see, actually twins. And before she received him, she said, what are you going to give me as a token that you're going to pay for this? And she, she says, why don't you give me your, your staff and your signet and your bracelets and you leave those with me until you send the gift for the act. I'm trying to be discreet, okay? And he said, fine, and he gives them to her. Well, when he sent the gift, she hightailed it out of there. So he never got his staff and his signet and his bracelets back. Never gave, never was able to give the gift. And then three months later, word comes. Tamar's with child. She's played the harlot. She did wrong. But Judah's response is then she needs to die. Look here at verse number 24 and 25. It came to pass about, we're in Genesis 38. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. Now stop there and think. She did wrong. And by the law, this is pre-law, but by the law she should die. That was right. Verse 25, When she was brought forth... She sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man who these are, am I with child? And she said, notice the word here, discern, I pray thee. Whose are these? The signet and the bracelets and staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. And I think I said Shua before. Sheila, my son. And he knew her again no more. Here's what I want to gain out of that principle, because that's a messy situation. Would you agree with that? How many of you would like to be in a situation where that comes across your desk and you have to deal with all that? 
mess. It's messy. But here's the principle I want to take out of that. If he'd done nothing wrong, the judgment that he'd pronounced had been right. And strictly speaking in the law, it was right. But he's a hypocrite. He's a total hypocrite. She's in the position she's in because of his actions. Because of his lack of control in his life. Because of what he had done. He hadn't given her to the son as promised. And then he himself had committed whoredoms with her. They're both guilty of doing wrong. And what happens is is that we can become so heady and high-minded about our perceived righteous judgment on someone else's act, we forget to discern our own responsibility in the situation. And she outsmarted him with those the signet and the staff and the bracelets by saying, you, you tell me, you tell me who's done wrong, Judah. And thankfully, he didn't disregard or lie. But because he discerned his own wickedness in the act, the judgment was taken away. And he just simply said, she's been more righteous than I. You know, taking responsibility for our own decisions and our own wrongdoing in a situation and discerning ourselves in it will often temper the judgment that we want passed on other people. Uh, This is a great lesson to learn and extremely difficult to apply. As I said, it's easy for us to find the beam in someone else's eye and overlook the moat in our own eye. And as I thought about different circumstances in my life, to my own shame, I think back about times that I wanted judgment brought for a situation. And technically, the judgment was right, but I was overlooking my own fault, my own hypocrisy. At the time. Am I the only one? (laughs) Help me out. (laughs) So we get heady. Hasty. And we want judgment brought for wrongdoing. And God says, hang on. Discern. Whose are these? Whose words are these? Dad? Who provoked your children to wrath? Isn't that what Ephesians 6 warns us about? Well, you know, my children are acting in a wrathful way and they just need to be brought into discipline and they need to be punished because it's not right. And God says, fine, Dad, did you provoke them to wrath with your words, your actions, your expectations that are unreasonable in their life and they became wrathful because they can't meet your expectations? And now you want judgment to fall on them? Sir, discern. Whose are these? As husbands, we can say, you know, God, uh, my wife this, my wife that. She's not doing this. She's not doing that. And God says, yes, that's true. 
and she's wrong, but discern for me, would you? Have you loved her the way Christ has loved the church? Have you paid attention to your attitude towards your wife? Have you treated her like the weaker vessel? In prayer, in attitude, in leadership? Or have you brought on the reason she doesn't respect you, submit to you, or reverence you? Some guys make it very difficult for their wives to reverence them and to honor them. Very difficult. And the husband's very quick to want judgment to come in the life of the wife because he doesn't like what she's doing. And she may be wrong, but we've got to discern our part in that. And the opposite is true too. Some ladies want their husbands to lead, but they're not willing to submit. They want to have leadership. They like to be backseat drivers or they like to, uh, they like to criticize and, and pick apart and pluck down the house that he's trying to build as she, she's critical about his decisions and critical about his directions and emphasizes his mistakes and and she just is at him, and, and we say nagging. She's nagging him all the time. And she won't let him lead, and she won't let him honor her. And of course, he's not going to be very loving. And the wife needs to discern herself in that. This is my responsibility in this. And we're both wrong, and both of them deserve judgment. But isn't it funny how we want judgment tempered when we discern ourselves? and recognize this is my staff and my bracelet and my signet in this whole matter. And I think about even in church, uh, from the pastor's side, boy, we can be, pastors can be critical and judgmental and quick to want to judge people and the decisions they make. We can be. But sometimes those people just, they might have just needed my time. They might have needed my counsel. They might have needed my patience, my long-suffering. I might have... whatever. And we're both wrong. Or you can sit in a pew and be critical about your pastor and the decisions he makes, the leadership that he gives. Yes, but have you prayed for him? Have you supported him? Have you told him that you love him? Have you got behind him on those things that are right and said, we're going to stand behind you? We're going to, you understand? And, and I don't, obviously, I just, I'm just picking things out of the air here. I've got nothing at all. We don't talk that way. But do you understand what I'm getting to? We have to discern ourselves. Yeah. And when we discern ourselves... There's many times that the judgment that may be just but was harsh will be set aside because I'm just as responsible as the person I want a judgment on. Employees and employers, and so on and so on. Do you see how this just applies? And this is why I said early on that discernment is so critical in the life of a believer. Employers and their employees and, and how they treat them and expect the right servitude out of the, out of the employees, but they're not treating them properly. They're not paying them properly. They're not 
You understand? And so, well, yeah, I'm going to bring judgment and drop the hammer on my employees. Yeah, but discern yourself. Look how you treat them. You treat them like a dog. They probably act like a dog. I don't like my boss, and I don't like the way my boss does this. And Yeah, but you steal time from him. And when you're at work, you're not working, and you're on your phone, and you're coming in late, and you're leaving early, and you're, you're messing around on his time, and he's paying you wages, and you, you, you act dishonestly at work, you're probably going to get treated that way too. I have to discern myself. And understand where my responsibility lies. Now, I'm not saying that in every occasion this is true. There are occasions where people mistreat us and we're just, we were right, we behaved ourselves right, there was no problem on our side. I understand that, but that's part of discerning. Am I responsible for contributing to the problem? I have to discern myself. Here in Proverbs chapter 25, Proverbs chapter number 25. I want to I discern myself in the words that I speak. I don't want to just spout things out of my mouth. In Proverbs 25 and verse number 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That takes self-discernment. To look at the situation and make sure that what's about to come out of my mouth is fitting. It's appropriate. And sometimes that means saying nothing. The next verse is, is again, it contributes the same. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. So that's self-discerning. Am I, am I wise, at least in the matter that I'm about to speak on? Am I wise about that? And is the person I'm going to say it to obedient to the Word of God anyway? If they're not obedient, I'm wasting my time. Which, by the way, is part of Proverbs chapter number 9. And I wrestled with some of this for, for a few years, and finally the Lord helped me with this. But Proverbs chapter number 9. I want to make sure I get this right. Yes. Proverbs 9, verse number 7, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. And for a long time I kept saying, but Lord, how do I know? Sometimes I'm a little bit slow on the uptake, and how do I know if I'm dealing with a scorner? or if I'm dealing with an obedient man, or a, a man who fears God or doesn't fear God. How do I know that? And he tells you in verse number 10, this is how you know whether you should speak to these people or not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. If I can see the fear of God in the life of the individual, then I can say something to them and know that they're going to receive it. But if I can't see, if there's no fruit of the fear of God in their life, it's best to keep my mouth shut. They're not going to listen to me. They don't even listen to God. And so that helped me to discern what I speak and who I speak it to. I'm discerning myself. I hope this is helping you. 
Uh, we need to discern our anger. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Is my anger under control of the Spirit of God? Because the, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Is my anger under the control of the Spirit of God? Is it? I know it's easy to say, well, it's righteous anger because I stand on the right principles. But is it under control of the Spirit of God? Because you can be right and still be wrong. You can have the right position and the wrong spirit. Right? I got to discern my anger. I got to discern my spirit. I got to discern my words. I got to discern my attitude. I just have to discern myself. And that then makes me free to discern others. Which is what I was going to go to next because I thought I was going to have plenty of time and we're out of time. But I wanted to look at Proverbs 7 and I can just give you an overview. In Proverbs chapter number 7, there's a young man. And Solomon talks about standing up in a, in a high place where he can see. He says, I look out the casement. He's looking out his window and he discerns among the youths a young man void of understanding. And that young man himself, because he's simple... And that's what it says about him. He's simple in the wrong way. He, he's easily pushed into wickedness. Because he's simple, he doesn't discern his place. His feet are going past her house. He doesn't discern the time. It's in the evening and in the twilight. He doesn't discern the woman herself. She comes out and meets him in the attire of a harlot. He doesn't discern that. And he doesn't discern what she proposes to him and the end result of it. And the end result is that his life is taken. And I look at that and I think there's, a, there's an example there of discerning people. Discerning where do their feet point? Where are they pointing their feet? Where do they tend to walk? You understand? And I don't, I don't just mean physically, but... Where do they spend their time? What is the direction that they seem to be facing? And how come they keep facing that way? Can I not discern that and see? This is a simple person who's going to be taken in evil. Maybe one day we can go into that even further. But I have to discern me before I discern someone else. And that's probably where we need to leave it. Okay? I hope that study is helpful to you. Father, we're sure grateful for the Word of God, and I pray that you would bless the words spoken today and use them as you see fit. And we ask now for your blessing on the hour to come, and that you'd bless Brother Hoots, the fathers, uh, that we would give our ultimate honor unto you as our Father. And God, we just pray for your spirit and your hedge to protect this place, and that it would be a safe haven, a place of joy and peace. And let Jesus Christ be exalted, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.